Welcome to the world as you'll know it. I'm your host, Judith Warner. This season, we're focusing on the brain and specifically on some of the staggering advancements in brain science that have completely altered our understanding of how the brain works, what it's capable of, and how it can be changed. These discoveries have opened the door to new ways of treating trauma, depression, and pain. And they've made possible the kinds of things that just a few years ago might have seemed like science fiction. Like the astonishing ability to communicate directly from your brain to a computer without moving a muscle. This spring, you may have read about the case of the German man in his 30s who was completely paralyzed, unable to move or speak because of ALS. After losing the ability to communicate through eye movement, he was given brain implants that allowed him to think commands that were then translated by a computer into full sentences that his family could understand. He was volitionally, voluntarily, consciously able to modulate his brain, and he would put out things like, I love my son, or, you know, adjust my pillow. I think he had an expletive in there. Or you know, so he was communicating at a very, you know, very, very, very slow rate. But he was communicating, demonstrating that there was a conscious being there able to express his wishes. He just had no way to express them, but now he did. That really brings tears to your eyes. It's, it's unbelievable that he could communicate again. Dr. John Donahue is an award-winning professor of neuroscience and engineering at Brown University. He's known around the world as one of the pioneers of brain-computer interface, or BCI, which is the technology that allowed the man in Germany to communicate with his family. For more than 40 years, he's devoted his career to restoring movement to people with paralysis. And we feel very lucky to have him with us today. He's going to tell us what BCI is, what it can do, and what it may mean for our collective future. John, thank you so much for being here. We're really looking forward to talking to you. Well, thanks, Judith. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, I'm particularly excited to speak with you because in addition to all of your decades of expertise in the brain and neurotechnology, you happen to be really good at explaining what you do in a way that someone who really doesn't know anything about your work can understand. So just for starters, can you tell us exactly what brain-computer interface is? So a brain-computer interface, which is also sometimes called a brain-machine interface, is a way to connect from the brain to the outside world directly bypassing uh, some parts of your nervous system and your muscles. So it's a straight connection through from the brain to the outside world. And when they say brain computer, really it's connecting to any kind of device. And typically there's always a computer in the loop because you have to translate what is coming out of the brain in brain language into something that a computer can understand or some machine can understand. And then that people can understand, I guess. Can you talk a little bit more about who benefits and how this technology is used? Basically, the idea is that for people who are paralyzed, paralyzed usually is a case like after a stroke uh, or an injury, the connection between the brain, where the parts where you sort of think up what you want to do and create the commands to move your body, come from. And they get shipped down to your spinal cord and then eventually out to your muscles. So that pathway, which is about a million little wires on each side of your brain, 
can be damaged, a stroke in your brain, uh, damage to your spinal cord, or even diseases like ALS or amyotropic lateral sclerosis, where the connections in the spinal cord die, the neurons die. So all of those things result in a disconnection between the brain command center for movement and your body. So how do you bypass it? What are the actual mechanics involved? So we basically can go to three major routes. One is you can take that signal and go to a computer, and whatever a computer can do, you can have it do. The next thing would be to control some kind of what's called a prosthetic device, an artificial substitute for what your body can do. And the one that we worked with is a robotic arm. And then the third way would be to connect the brain back up to the body itself. And that would mean taking the brain signal and doing some fancy manipulation of the signals and connecting it to devices which are called FES systems, functional electrical stimulation. And basically what that is, it's an electrical stimulator that can connect to your muscles or to the nerves that control your muscles. And that thing can make your muscles move. So now you take a brain signal and run it to this FES system and that'll make your arm move. And we've actually done that. We've had a person who is paralyzed, think about moving his arm, and through this FES system that was implanted in his arm, he picked up a drink and ate a sandwich and was able to do things. And the idea is to help restore the ability for people who can't move, they can't move their legs or their arms, or they can't speak, which is also produced by muscles, and you can replace those functions with the brain-computer interface. Okay, I'm sitting here trying to wrap my brain around this, no pun intended. I mean, that it's possible to look at a drink on the table in front of me and think about picking it up and bringing it to my mouth, and then that those thoughts can result in a prosthetic arm doing just that. The hardware that's required to make this happen, does it, does it have to be implanted into your brain? No, really, you can divide the world up into what's called wearables uh, and implantables. So the implantable devices are mostly, in fact, entirely what I've worked with. The idea is there's a tiny sensor or sometimes a couple of them. It's about the size of a baby aspirin. It has a bunch of tiny hair-thin probes on it, has a hundred of them. The surgeon will open the skull, open a membrane called the dura, which is a thin membrane on the brain, puts this device in, closes it all up, and then that is a source of reading out the sort of high-resolution signals from the brain that provides a lot of information about your motor command, what you want to do. And then the wearable devices, there's been a recent surge in uh, various kinds of little caps and bands and headbands and stickers and things you can put on your head. Uh, if you've seen what's called an EEG uh, recording, that there's kind of a hat that people wear studded with lots of little baby aspirin-sized discs, and those things pick up a signal from the brain. And so what's the difference in functionality between the wearable devices and the implants? A good analogy is imagine you want to know what's going on in a football stadium and you're flying over it in the Goodyear blimp. And EEG is kind of, you can, you can get the roar of the crowd. You can say, you know, did one side or the other uh, just score a touchdown? So you get some information, but if you really want to know, you know, what's the quarterback being told to do on the next play, you'd have to drop a microphone in, and hence an, an implanted uh, device that's in close to the source of the conversation. And that's what the implanted electrodes do for you. That's a great analogy. And EEGs, though, aren't particularly new, right? They've been around for quite a while. Oh, since the 1930s. 
And uh, to be honest, I used to be quite cynical about whether there'd ever be anything. I said, you know, after almost 100 years of trying to get something from an EEG, it's except for the, the clinical cases I mentioned, there's not a whole lot. But I actually now think that there are a, a number of cases where some very serious scientists have applied some very clever tricks to get uh, some idea of, you know, what's going on in the brain for different applications that we see now. Those will probably be a lot better. So clinical applications, I think, will, will continue to emerge uh, from this. And then there are claims of using them for various commercials, you know, like game playing and, you know, uh, meditation and things. And so I think that's a mixed bag of, of what they actually do. I'm interested, something you just said about how, you know, you used to be skeptical. These had been in use for 100 years. Nothing had changed all that much. But then now things really have changed technologically so that there are great scientists who are able to get more specific and useful um, data this way. And it seems like with brain research generally, this is true. Things were about the same for 100 years, and then boom, just huge, huge, huge advances. What happened? Well, first of all, it's science, right? I think that's the nature of science is, you know, there there are some things where, you know, if you just grind away at it, you know it'll work. And in science, there's just lots of questions where we don't know when we'll ever figure it out. Like, how does the brain work? Someday, if somebody says, I've, I've figured out the key of how your brain actually does all the cool things it does, I figured it out. We're done. You know, that, that will be probably one of the most transformational events in history, I think. Especially with brain research, I think there's a convergence. So one convergence is that neuroscience has come of age. It's actually got enough data that we know enough about the brain to start saying, well, this is a disease state. Is a circuit gone wrong? And we know where that circuit is. Can we do something to that circuit? The other major issue has been technology advances. To be able to make tiny devices that can be implanted in the brain, to be able to make electronics that can process huge amounts of information. You know, when I first started, the idea of sensing one cell at a time in a conscious animal, you know, this was a really big deal. And all of a sudden, you know, between 1999 and 2004, we went from recording one cell to being able to record 100 in humans, you know. So that was a, that was a huge shift in, in our capabilities. I heard you say once that at some point in the 90s, you were sitting around with a bunch of your students and you were all kind of brainstorming, sort of fantasizing about what you could do for people, you know, with this work down the line. Um, and when you were talking about it, when I heard you and you were looking back, you said, we've done all that. And that just sort of like sent a chill down my spine. And I love thinking about both the moment and the fact that you're able to say that because not many people can. I mean, there were multiple moments like that, but I remember thinking, you know, these are things where we really could do something. You know, we were doing science up to that point, trying to understand how the brain worked, but we did realize that we had the tool, you know, this electrode array. We had an application where we understood enough about how the brain produced movement that we could really help people who are paralyzed. You know, we could really do something meaningful. That must have been an incredible moment. And before you tell me more about it, could you take a moment to explain what the electrode array is? So the array is the interface with the brain. It's the signal detector. So neurons are extremely tiny little tree-like structures. Uh, they're so tiny that you could line up three cells next to a hair. And they broadcast an electrical set of impulses, you know, a, just kind of a series of pops. And uh, I give an analogy. The neuron puts out, you know, six pops, they're called spikes, 
then that might mean that's my code for rightward. And then if I put out two pops, that's my code for left. And it's much more complicated than that, but that's not far off from a, where you start. You know, Each neuron has a kindly different message. And, but in order to pick up those kinds of electrical impulses, what you have to do is take, basically it's, it's like a very tiny needle, you know, the size of a hair. It's all covered in plastic except for the tip. So the tip is the sensing place. And you place it into the brain. And when it nuzzles up close to a neuron, it picks up those pops. The problem with one electrode, of course, is you've only got one little sample site, and that's where the multi-electrode array, an array just means a bunch of electrodes. So there's a hundred little sensors of little, little prongs coming out. Those go into the brain. The, we learned that the brain tolerates that very well. And sometimes we put in multiple ones now, and we can get a few hundred cells. Now, that's a very tiny sample of the hundreds of millions that are in the vicinity, but but we still get enough of a sample to, to read out the brain. You've been at this your entire career for decades now. What have been some of the real eureka moments for you? Moments when you realize that this is real, you're really going to be able to transform lives. I think that the first one was, of course, in a human who had been paralyzed, Matt Nagel was the first person implanted. He was uh, severely injured with a spinal cord injury, couldn't move at all from the neck down. We put an array in him. And of course, somebody who'd been paralyzed, there were people who said, well, maybe that part of the brain just shuts down altogether, or maybe it's taken over by some other uh, function that it doesn't do anything related to the arm. So uh, when we put the array, that, that moment of turning it on and saying, wow, there's all kinds of cells here. They're very active. And actually, they seem to be doing pretty much what we'd expect them to be doing if you were intact and didn't have a problem. So that was amazing. And then to work with Matt and have him, you know, controlling a cursor. And then we had this toy robotic arm that he controlled. And, you know, little, little, we just tried everything to see what he could do. And it was really, you know, fun and, and, uh, and, and amazing to watch because we knew we were then on a path where a lot could be done. How did he learn to use it, and how long did it take? So what, what we said to him is, imagine you're controlling a mouse on a table. You know, you're moving a mouse around. And when he did that, the brain produced the activity as if he were really doing it. It's our problem to, to learn something. What we had to learn was, here's a pattern of activity that's going on in Matt's brain. How does that relate to your hand moving in space, like left, right, forward, and back? How do you make sense out of those signals? And, uh, and then we could translate that into a command, just like if you speak a foreign language, you know, you can take in uh, Spanish and output English. You know, you're translating one thing into another. We had to put in an algorithm that said, okay, this cell is telling us that, this cell is telling that, the two cells together are telling us something else. And we had to put all that together. In his case, was it a question of moving of a robotic arm? Or was it a question of being able to move a cursor on a screen? Most of the things we did with him involved uh, moving a cursor on a screen. So he was playing a video game. He was spelling, you know, you could use all the usual uh, computer stuff like open your email. He moved his eyes to look at the screen, but the eyes didn't control anything that was all done through his brain. And it seems like a lot of this really exciting work in the past two decades has been around communication. And I'd love to hear more of that from you. Um, the landscape of what that looks like in in helping people who are cut off from speech, let's say, being able to communicate. 
Yeah, I think that, well, there have been two major thrusts recently. Uh, One of them is, you know, how well can you decode thinking about moving your hand to handwrite and turning it into typewritten language? And recently, the the, the BrainGate group was led by Lee Hochberg at Stanford. They showed that uh, if a person was imagining handwriting, they could decode letters at about 90 characters a minute. So this is amazing. A person who says, I can't use my hands, I can't type, but now I can communicate, I can type letters with just using the output of my brain. There was a decoding breakthrough and an understanding of how the brain characterized information. So previously, people were just sort of looking at a keyboard or imagining a keyboard and and typing out the individual letters with their brains? No, no. Well, so what Matthew would do is uh, there's a keyboard already set up on most uh, computer software interfaces that it's called point and dwell. So you move the cursor, which you could do with this brain, over a letter. And if you dwell on that spot for a quarter of a second, it automatically types it. So I can, if I want to type A-N-D, I just move the cursor to A, wait a little bit, it clicks, go to N, wait a little bit, it clicks, a D. That gives you um, maybe five or 10 characters per minute. I may be wrong with exact numbers. But now we're at 90 characters per minute. What about, I know that there you were involved in some very recent uh, research findings regarding a man in Germany who had ALS, who had been completely locked in, and who became able to communicate. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so that was the second study. So the first one was high-speed communication with his handwriting. The second one was a question of when a person with ALS, uh, they will use any means of communication possible. Their eyes, uh, sometimes a twitch of a face muscle, any of those kinds of things can be used for some kind of communication, and usually at exceptionally low rates. But eventually you become from locked in, and and there's some debate about what the definitions mean, but locked in means you can't move anything really. But but I think if you can move your eyes, I think you qualify as locked in, but not completely locked in, which is C-L-I-S, completely locked in syndrome. Um, And again, you'll find people debate over the exact terms. The man in Germany, was he completely locked in? He was completely locked in, yes. So no eye movement even? Nothing. There was no means of communication at all. Now the question is, what happens in your brain? Is there a conscious person in there that is living a conscious life but can't have any output? Dr. Beerbomber, who uh, was working on that study, was a lead investigator, uh, was very much interested in whether maybe the brain just shuts down. You know, that when you have no ability to act on anything, the brain shuts down, which in a way sounds kind of merciful. Then there was a patient, this patient in in Germany, and he was completely locked in. We uh, put this electrode array in his brain. Uh, There were actually two. I would say that it was probably not um, as robust a signal as we were used to seeing. And he couldn't see well enough. He couldn't move his eyes. So he couldn't really look at an alphabet and move his eyes, you know, to say I'm looking here or looking there. So uh, it was an unusual and uh, ultimately a very slow uh, paced using a, a sound that represented just a couple of neurons firing. That that meant I'm selecting that letter. So it was kind of a yes, no. And, and the first thing you'd do, like, a series of letters is the letter you want in in this block of letters. Yes, you know it's like twenty questions. You know now is it in the th- group of three? Is it in? Is it this one? So with that kind of spelling, he was able to spell. 
How would he indicate to you, though? How was, how was the yes or no coming to you? Just thinking. That's all, that's all he could do. There was a letter presented, and then if he raised the level of neuron activity so that it crossed a threshold with that sound feedback, if the tone changed sufficiently across the threshold, that meant yes. He was volitionally, voluntarily, consciously able to modulate his brain, and he would put out things like, I love my son, or, you know, adjust my pillow. I think he had an expletive in there or whatever. You know, so he was communicating at a very, you know, very, very, very slow rate. But he was communicating, demonstrating that there was a conscious being there able to express his wishes. He just had no way to express them, but now he did. That really brings tears to your eyes. It's it's unbelievable that he could communicate again. What did you learn about a person who is in that state. I mean, I think most of us from the outside would assume that that is just living torture. But it sounds like it wasn't necessarily for him. No, no. Yeah, he seemed to I mean, if you look at the conversations that are published in the paper, they're really kind of like family conversations. You know, it was really wonderful to see that he was able to have an outlet to to talk to his family and communicate with them. And actually, the studies that have been done say that people who are at home with their families and have some minimal way of communicating actually have a reasonable quality of life, uh, even though they can't move. Really incredible, though, and really leads into thinking about the future. And also, I, I guess, to scale up, to get more and more people to be able to have access to these devices eventually. How many people have ALS in the U.S.? And, and I mean, I realize he was in Germany, but would be able to benefit or people with paralysis? For commercialization purposes, of course, the you know commercial entities are interested in how many. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, ALS is, I think, on the order of a, a few thousand a year, 1,500 or so, not very many people. But then on the other hand, Hemiparetic strokes, which means a stroke in the brain that's on one side that leads to paralysis of the other side of the body. There are um, on the order of 700,000 people that happens to in the U.S. That's a lot of people. So there's a range of you know people who are paralyzed from ALS, which is a thankfully small number, but stroke is very big. What do you think is next on the horizon? What's the next big thing, do you think, that we're going to see? Well, there's a lot of a lot in that question. So, in the realm of sensing the brain, I think uh, you know the ability for rapid communication for people who have lost the ability to speak is something that is already. I think we could, you know, we're going to be able to do a good job of that. Um, restoring movement to people, it's going to happen eventually. I think that right now the technology needs still a lot of work to be a really useful affordable commercial device that is reliable for a long period of time. As I understand it, this has become, you know, a hot area for investors. And of course, you know, Elon Musk's Neuralink has brought a lot of attention, positive and negative. Do you think that's where, is it going to come from Silicon Valley? Is it going to come from individual billionaires, you know, bringing in the necessary money? Or do, do we need something else? You know, I think people like Musk demonstrate that you can really go fast if you have the resources. I suspect they run into issues where you need to bring clinicians and neuroscientists into, and they do have some working with them, but into close proximity. But I mean, really day-to-day working with each other and really appreciating the complexity of the problem. And, the, you know, you have to deal with, you know, the brain as a a clinical structure, you know, where things, you can get infections and you can get tissue reactions and things like that. 
you know, the engineering, it's not just uh, producing a small device, but you can't, it can't get hot. You know, if something is hot up against your brain, you can have a seizure. So it's a very complex set of issues. It would be great to talk a little bit about the ethical issues that are coming into play now as commercialization is happening, with some talk of it at least, a lot of attention, a lot of money. You know, what do you see as the big ethical issues? Well, in terms of brain-computer interfaces, where you read out the brain, people are worried that you're going to, you know, read your innermost thoughts um, and, you know, know that you're going to commit a crime and the government will have access to your brain and then you'll be, you know, you'll be arrested before you even commit the crime. The one that I'm more concerned about is the, the other end of neurotechnology is some kind of stimulation of the brain. You can modify brain circuits with electrical stimulation. You can introduce information into the brain with electrical stimulation. It's pretty crude, but it's been used, for example, in Parkinson's disease where people are rigid and they shake. And you can put an electrical stimulating electrode, a small one about the size of a piece of linguine, deep into the brain and a little target that's about the size of a Tic Tac candy. And miraculously, you can either stop or diminish all of that and people can, can move again. So it really is remarkable. What you're doing is changing a brain circuit. And so basically everything you are is a consequence of brain circuits, which means with electrical stimulation, you can change anybody into anything. There are people working, for example, in, in a good sense of trying to overcome addiction. So addiction is a brain circuit that's gone awry. If you can bring it back into a non-addicted state, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, be addicted any longer to drugs. That could be a great thing. But now imagine you're changing somebody. Well, let's say I could change your child's IQ and make them much smarter. Who gets that device, you know? And supposing it costs $100,000, everybody's not going to have access to it. So I can change your personality. I can change your intellect. I can change your memory capacity. Those things can't be done just yet, but they're things like that that are feasible with electrical stimulation. So there needs to be careful regulation. The idea of being able, I'll just say first, the the reading out part of it, basically, where you're able to get the signal coming out and being able to understand what the signal is saying. Are we actually close to being at risk of, let's say, um, I don't know, people being able to read your mind, uh, discern your intentions, or is that still sort of in sci-fi land? Oh, no, that's what we do. When we do a brain-computer interface, we're reading your intention to move. You want to move because you're not moving, right? Um, and you can, uh, you can tap into that. You can, you can tap into plans of what you want to do. Uh, that's been done in animals a lot. You know, we can, you know, see what you're planning to do in the future. Not, not the elaborate details like I'm planning to take a vacation in the south of France or that kind of thing. But, but ge generally, you know, I'm, I'm planning to move my arm to the right in, in a couple of seconds. Uh, those kinds of intentions can be read already. So there isn't necessarily a giant leap from that understanding to doing something more elaborate, except that it takes an implant in the brain to do it, which most people aren't going to just say, I want that in my head. And in terms of the issue of equitable access that you raised, I mean, leaving aside altogether the question of, do we want to make smarter children? We have this brave new world that is completely unregulated where some of these big risks are kind of on the horizon. We don't know when they'll come. What model do we have for trying to ethically regulate something that does not yet exist? 
Well, we have lots of examples of uh, regulation in an ethics framework. You know, there's a whole set of standards of how we treat humans in clinical cases because of abuse in the past. There are already journals that deal with ethics in, in neuroscience and neurotechnology. There's a, a group in New York that's getting together a council to bring these ethical issues. There's already in Chile, there's already a, in their constitution um, a data rights for, for your thought, for, your, for human brain rights. Um, so I think there, there is already activity of saying, you know, in the future we'll be able to do these things uh, how are we going to protect people and protect their their innermost thoughts and, the, and their brain? So that that's already ongoing. The one concern is that you know, if if it's out there, people are aware of it. People are going to try to find ways of abusing this kind of technology. You know, is that something that is I don't know foremost among your worries? It doesn't worry me that tomorrow we're going to have this kind of a problem, but I, it's not too far into the future. And if we do have a way to produce devices that are more sophisticated, smaller, faster, and we get them done in the near future, then that day will come sooner. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I mean, I could continue talking to you for hours about this and dissect every single answer, but um, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, it was a great pleasure. It was really fun. Thanks, Judith. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. John Donahue. Join me next week as I speak with Dr. Rudolph Tanzi about how the aging brain can be its own worst enemy and what we can do about it. Right now, when you go to the doctor, there's no checkup from the neck up, right? They get above your neck and they look at the holes in your head. They look in your eyes and your ears and your nose and in your mouth. And it's like, hey, I got three pounds of jelly back there that kind of matters. Yeah, we don't look at that. But now we're getting to that point. We're getting to that point now where we can say, we can look at indicators of brain health, like we do for the heart with cholesterol, and, and we can develop the equivalent of the stethoscope or the blood pressure cuff. The World As You'll Know It is brought to you by Aventine, a nonprofit research institute creating and sharing work that explores how today's decisions could affect the future. The views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of Aventine, its employees, or affiliates. For a transcript of the episode and more resources related to what you've heard in today's episode, please visit us at aventine.org slash podcast. Danielle Mattoon is the editorial director of Aventine. The World As You'll Know It is produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our associate producer is Yinka Rickford Angwin. Our producers are Sophia steinert Evoy and Stephen Key. Our senior editor is Joel Lovell. This episode was mixed by Davey Sumner, and I'm your host, Judith Warner. Original music by Hannes Brown. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Our executive producers are J.N. Berry, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The next episode will be out in a week. Make sure to listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.